0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: A science story, huh?
0: Is NYU a scientist? Uh, I, I felt it. I, I, right. right. I was so and happy. And I just thought, well, I had figured it, wow. out. I it
1: was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
0: Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, our stories are all about our best furry friends, dogs. Now, I've never personally owned a dog, but when I was a kid, I was desperate for one. I wanted a puppy so, so badly. I asked Santa every year on Christmas for one and one year I even pretended the stuffed animal I owned was a dog and I would walk around the house with a leash made of a shoelace and like despite how pathetic I was my dad was not budging on this no pets rule but man one day when I have a yard and don't travel so much I'm totally getting a dog. For now, I just have to make do with my cat, who kind of acts like a dog. I even trained her to sit for treats. Animal behavior psychologists might not be that impressed with me, but it's one of my biggest life accomplishments to date. Anyway, our first story is from an actual professional animal trainer, Chris Brown. His story was recorded at Wild Detectives in Dallas, Texas in December 2022. The theme that night was Pivot.
1: My wife is an extraordinary woman mm. and <laughs> an exceptional partner and loving her has been one of the great joys of my life. But
0: <laughs>
1: I only found love because of a dog, a dog named Terror, who like me from Detroit like all of us was born in the circumstances, she did not choose. Terror was a bait dog. Yeah. Some of you familiar. For those of you that aren't, in fighting dog rings, they use bait dogs to train the fighters to kill. By the time I got to Terror, she was the only puppy still alive from her litter. I know because I was able to get one of the guys alone. And using my gift of gab and a 40 caliber pistol, (laughs) I convinced him that I was taking that dog. (laughs) She's sitting in the car next to me. She's in my passenger seat and I'm looking down at her. She's emaciated, dirty, fur ripped off, open wounds, broken ribs and fleas bouncing off of her like a trampoline. And she's staring right into me with these eyes full of fear, full of hope, conflicted. And I knew I had to take care of her. This was my life's charge. (laughs) So I take her to the vet. I get her cleaned up. And now it's time to start training. Now, at this point, I've been working dogs since I could walk. My granddad would throw a big winter coat on me in the dead of summer, and I'd go out there and work those German shepherds. At this point with terror, i have been doing it to make a little money on the side here and there. When I saw people who needed help with a dog, I'd charge them a little, very low fee, help them with their dog. I was good at it. But with terror, it mattered that I understood Why? So I start reading voraciously because at this point, I haven't had any formal training, no certification, no three easy payments of 29 99 DVDs, <laughs> nothing. Just a keen eye. And so I start reading. I'm looking at studies. I'm looking at anything I can find on canine cognition and communication. I need to understand how they think, how they learn. And as I'm studying, I'm also watching. I'm watching videos now. I'm watching not just people actually interacting with dogs, but just if, if they're doing an interview on the news and their dog's there, I want to know, is the dog, how they're responding to the reporter? I'm taking notes. How are they responding to the camera crew? And are they listening to the owner? I want to know everything. I'm watching my neighbors very creepily. I'm walking behind them with my notepad. Mm, interesting. I just studied and studied and absorbed and absorbed and I applied and applied and I'm doing it with my clients and with my dog, Terror. And we keep working and there's two really big things that are an issue with her. She's very scared of people and especially if you have something in your hand and she can't play with other dogs without trying to rip their throat out. Oh, Not a great game. <laughs> Not fun to have to police but I'm working with her. And in all that I learned, one very fundamental thing that was very simple that I realized almost everyone missed, including me. We talk too much to our dogs. Mm. We're either baby talking or we're talking to them like a petulant teenager when they mess up. (laughs) They don't know what that means. It's just sounds to them. But how do you teach a human words? You show them a square and you say square. So when we go outside, outside. We come in the house, house. When we play, play. And as she learns, you see the eyes change. She starts really paying attention. She's locked in on me and anything I'm saying because now she's looking for those key words because I've given her a lexicon to work with. And we use that, and we build on that, and we build her bravery. And now she's not scared of people. Now I lived at this point in an adult frat house, uh, six nights a week for the parties. Terror became the show. She's not scared of anything in anyone's hand or the people in there. People are coming more frequently, and the first thing they ask, "Where's terror?" She's a star and she's a beautiful Brindle Pitbull now, full grown, two years old, but she still can't play with other dogs without trying to rip their fro- throats out. We keep working at it for two years, still nothing. Every time she goes for the throat, but we condition what no means very firmly. So when I say no, she stops and waits for her next direction. So I could always stop her so that allowed me to keep trying. for Two years. Finally, a Shetland sheepdog. They're like tiny collies, little lassie, cute dogs, full of energy. This one loved herding cars. So he needed to come stay with me for a while so we could work that out. Not a healthy habit. And as I'm working with him and Tara's helping, she helps with all the dogs. As long as they're not playing, she's a great teacher. Play, not so much, obviously. But we hit a point where I'm trying to let them play. And she tackles the Shetland Sheepdog. pinned down real hard with the elbows. But she stops and doesn't go for the throat. Terror, eyes. She looks at me. Still pinning this dog down. Terror, play. And she looks down at them and she lets them up, and they run around my backyard for the next 45 minutes.
0: Aww.
1: It was beautiful. And it was at this moment that I knew that I needed to become a dog trainer to the stars and get my own Nat Geo TV show. I'm gonna move to LA. It's gonna have a cheesy name like Captain K9 or the K9 King. They're gonna superimpose a cape on me. <laughs> Dogs flying around. You know how the TV show intros are. It's gonna be great. And so my business has grown, but I'm feeling it. And I'm like, we need, to, we need to get out to LA. Me and Tara, cause she helped me build this. We're gonna do this. At the time I worked for a veterinary company and they had a job opening in Fresno or as I call it, Fres Hell <laughs> If any of you. Yeah. See, somebody knows. Yeah. It's uh, if you don't know, California also has desert and Fresno is right smack in the middle of that desert. So it's a great place to be. But it, it would get me out to California. It was a step in the right direction. They said, you have 30 days or we got to give it to somebody else. Say, cool, I'll make it happen. So I clean up my life. I'm getting everything ready. And three days before it's time to go. I've got everything squared away, except I don't have a place to live. And I've learned more about the job. And it's a traveling role. I need to travel three days a week. No place and gone three days a week. I know I can't take terror into that. It's not going to work. I realize that and I fall to the bottom of the shower as I'm having this moment. And I cry like toddler dropped ice cream on the dirt cry. And as I'm sobbing my eyes out, terror. One thing I never trained out of her, she's afraid of water. Like it's her kryptonite. Like if you do this, even with dry fingers, she's, (laughs) hates it, hates the stuff. It's her kryptonite. Same dog, walks right into the bathroom where I'm crying at the bottom of the shower. And she sticks her whole head in that shower. And she nudges me hard. Staring right into me. Eyes full of fear. Full of hope. Conflicted. Three days later, I was in a car on the way to Fresno without her. Hardest decision i ever made. My best friend is riding with me, live with me at the adult frat house. He's assuring me, I'm going to take care of her. She's going to be all right. He knows I'm coming back for my girl. And the whole time I'm plotting on how I'm going to make it happen. So when I get out there, instead of traveling three days a week, I'm on the road six days a week. I'm not just building the existing market like I'm supposed to for the veterinary company. I'm building a new market in L.A. 11 months later, that market's built. They said, we need someone to run it. I said, that's mine. They said, you built it, it's yours. Mm -hmm. So now I'm stable in L.A. 11 months later, and I buy a one-way flight back to Detroit, and I go get my
0: terror.
1: She's sitting in the car with me passenger seat staring right into me but this time there's nothing but hope in her eyes and she sleeps that long 36-hour ride back to LA <laughs> now here's the thing about that uh, that choice six days a week I'm working one day a week I'm in town and Fred's hell no and it was during that one day a week that I met my wife Sometimes in life, you have impossible decisions. No right or wrong answer, no idea what to do. But to make the hard choice, sometimes you just need a little nudge. That
0: was Chris Brown. Chris Brown was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. He's always had an affinity for animals, but especially for dogs. For Chris, dog training has become a hobby that persisted into adulthood and eventually grew into a successful business. Chris's dog training business is now based in Dallas, and he's partnered with a Local Rescue, where he educates both fosters and adopters. Chris and his wife, Kay, share their home with three lively former street dogs, Ellie, Rogue, and Terror. Okay. Before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. Coming up this month, we have shows in New York, Atlanta, Boston, and Seattle. Visit storycollider.org shows for more details and to get your tickets. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclutterorg education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Our next Intro to Storytelling Workshop, which is going to start on April 17th, is now open for registration. Again, storycollider.org education for more details. Also, you should totally follow us on social media, at Story We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok check out storycollider.org slash store for storycollider merch we have hoodies tote bags t-shirts and more and finally if you're a fan of this podcast and if you like us believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to please consider donating to the story collider at storycollider.org slash donate you can always sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the story collider Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. It was recorded in a backyard pier space in Los Angeles, California. The theme that night was setbacks.
2: One thing that I love about uh, little kids is that they're like kind of the ideal uh, improv partners. in part because sure they're curious and like to explore but they also have like the memory of a gnat um, which you really need for improv you need to forget what you know quickly and move on Um, and one of the first times i realized this was from my nephew leo Um, my nephew leo uh, moved here with his mom my husband's sister uh, about four years ago and He was five when he moved here. And as an adult who was raised, I'm an only child, single mom, like I don't have a big extended family. So he was kind of the first child that I had in my adult life that I thought of as like family or someone that I could care about who was a child. And I was like, oh, kids are cool. Like he's one of the coolest. Like there were days that I would hang out with Leo and I'd be like, oh, thank God you're here because you understand me. And it was like, (laughs) I'm like 45, what's going on? Um, and I remember one of the things I love about him, which is playing games and being improvisational is one time um, He broke a rubber band. He was just playing with a rubber band in the kitchen And you know when kids are little they don't understand the value of things so in his mind he he looked terrified like he could have broken like a crystal lamp worth like a thousand dollars and had the same like <gasps> like is this rubber band important and he looked at me and I looked at him and I was like Leo you know I'm going to have to reach out to the rubber band repairman now. And I saw his face do the thing where a little bit of fear and then I see you. And then I saw him make the choice to be like, oh, well, how much do you think it'll be to fix it? And I was like, well, I don't know. How much was it originally? I was like, wow, you are five doing cost benefit analysis on like a rubber band and you're my ideal scene partner. I love this. Now. One of the things that was cool is that you know, my husband and I had moved just a few years earlier from New York and we were kind of just the two of us out here and it was so cool to have my sister-in-law and Leo and it was like we had a, like a little family and I hadn't had that little like family in L.A. And uh, it was the four of us, and then the fifth member of our family, our dog, Charlie. Uh, Charlie is uh, a, a little terrier, kind of a chihuahua mix, little white dog with a black, like one like Martin Scorsese eyebrow. Um, and uh, he, 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 that little dog was my jam. Um, I didn't really grow up with a lot of animals that we had in my life. My dad liked getting um, married as much as he liked getting divorced. Uh, pets kind of came and went with the, the, the one-time stepmother. And, um, you know, I remember this dog, like, you know, my husband and I met him at a meet and greet and I didn't even think I liked a little dog. And then he came up, he, his, his hip had a scar cause they had found him in Alabama with a busted leg and he kind of limped over and like tripod over. And I just was like, Oh, you're my person. Um, and I remember like the first week I had him, we were walking around in Williamsburg and I was just, a, I was like, I'm a man walking my pet. Like this feels amazing. And I walked past this, like, um, uh, Williamsburg, like Thai restaurant with like a thumping DJ and like a big Buddha fountain. It was very hip. And sitting in front of it was this like very Berlin looking guy in like those big, like, um, Uh, those big like parachute pants and he had like a chain link necklace and like frosted spiky hair and he had the big cans on like big big headphones and i walked by with the dog and this guy looks up and his face everything shifted he lit up and he said oh my god this looks like the dog uh, of a of a boy from a story and i was like i'm glad i could light up your day like it was just like he was like oh and like this is crazy but he really kind of made me feel like a boy from a story like I just felt like that little dog was my jam so it was like great having us all here together and then shortly after uh Leo and his mom moved here one day uh Charlie had a little seizure and I didn't think much of it and the doctor said oh well you know we're not exactly sure but we'll run some tests and over the next few months, there were all sorts of diagnoses. It was like maybe a compressed vertebrae. Um, um, Maybe he was just having um, like a reaction to something in the environment. But I knew something wasn't right. And slowly, what started to happen was that we started to realize that there was something wrong in Charlie's brain, because the seizures kept going. And, you know, my husband and I, we were just started like throwing money at whatever this was right you know and if you've ever had a pet that you care for in that way like you know the first bill comes and you're willing to just take one little step towards whatever it is and the next thing you know you're just running your soul your heart your bank account you are just running at whatever this problem is you're going to fix it and after a few months um, we realized uh, that what charlie had was a brain tumor and We went to uh, the cancer veterinarian and he basically told us, look, um, this is progressing so fast that your little dog won't survive the series of radiation treatments that it will take. Like, he literally won't make it through the treatments themselves. And, um, you know, if you get normal radiation um, for a small pet, it's up to 20 different radiation. and And they have to, like, you know, give the dog anesthesia each time. And he's like, we can't put your dog under and bring him back over and over again this many times. But there's this thing... Uh, called stereotactic radiation. And he explained to me what it was. It was three treatments of radiation that were super, super focused and really, really intense and very, very expensive. And I had that moment where Jack and I looked at each other and we looked at this little dog that we love so much and we're like, we're we're all in. And I had already been at that point living in and out of the veterinary uh, cancer center Just on and off, Charlie would go in and come home. Uh, There would be nights I would just stay up. My ringer was on all the time. I started to take less freelance work. I just started to arrange my... There were date nights that I would go to the cancer center and be like, well, I would just listen to the sad album by the Sundays and I would sit and I would watch him struggle to lift his head to eat wet food and that was my life. And when they started the treatments, the first one went okay. And when the second one happened, they were like we had to intubate him. He didn't make it through it. And we don't know if he's going to make it through this third one, but we're going to give it a go. And I just had this sinking feeling that it wouldn't go okay. And the next day I remember I woke up and Leo was uh, there with us that day. And uh, he was like, how do you think it's going to go? And I remember telling him, I think it's going to go okay. I don't know. I don't know. Because I didn't want to be negative. I didn't want him to kind of experience like my own, my own anxiety. And when they called us and said it went great, He's going to be okay. We couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe he'd made it through all three treatments. And they said, you know, the radiation worked. And we brought him home literally like the next day. And he was a mess. He was a hot mess. He had a cone. He was shaved in lots of spots. He was a little drunk. He kind of hobbled places. And he needed stairs to get places. But the veterinarian told us, hey, this is going to improve and improve. Radiation doesn't stop working after the last treatment. It's going to keep working. And for six weeks, he started to get better. And it was like we had our whole family back and we would be in our little house and Claire would come over with Leo and Charlie would be there and we'd all be enjoying each other's company. I remember one night I was sitting on the couch and Leo was sitting on the other side of Charlie and he played with Charlie very intensely, but Leo is a really sensitive kid. He's smart and even at five, like. He got the idea, and he also could see Charlie. Charlie was battle scarred. This dog had so many shave spots from IVs and incisions and injections. and as we're watching watching TV, I just hear Leo go, "David, David, I say, "What?" He was whispering he didn't want to he didn't want to annoy Charlie. And he was pointing at a little shaven square on Charlie's side where it was just pink skin, and he just whispered, "Is Charlie made of ham?"." <laughs> And I looked at him, and it was that combination when a kid can say that thing that makes you want to laugh and cry at the exactly the same amount. Because what I wanted to say to him was like, yeah, we kind of all are. Like, I don't even know if you've realized the point you've made. but. um, And I thought, this is going to be great. And then about four weeks after that, one day, Charlie had another seizure, and they told us it could happen. So we took him to the animal, uh, the, uh, the cancer center, and we surrendered him. And we thought, you know, in the morning, we're going to call. It's going to be over. And the next morning I called and I was like, how was Charlie? How was the seizure? And they're like, well, it hasn't stopped. And that means that he had been essentially seizing for so long that even to bring him back, we didn't even know what we'd be bringing back. So my husband and I made the choice after all of this fighting and months and months of living this way that like, it was just over, like that we couldn't do it. So we said goodbye to him. And in the weeks after that, I was just so devastated. Um, It's it was interesting to have to surrender so much of my life and things I do and love to care for him and then lose him and then not have all the things that I gave up to do that work. And I was just so depressed. And one of the things that really struck me that was weird about the depression was that I couldn't be around Leo. Like Leo was this person who was like my my little person who I loved. And I was like, he can't see me. Because I would just cry all the time. I kept finding, like, toys around the place. I kept, like, everything, like, triggered me. And I also, for all the ways that I had been immersed in this very scientific, like, the fact that I could even understand radiation, to me, was amazing. Like, I just don't think that way. And the fact that I could understand all of these sort of procedures, yet also be a person who was wandering through House of Intuition, a new age store, openly weeping, just buying as many little crystal bracelets to protect me from death or depression or sadness. Like, I was just kind of a mess. And weeks and weeks went by, and I hadn't seen Leo at all. And you know how, I guess the way to describe that kind of sadness was that I felt like the sadness in me was weather. It was like weather that was always moving. And I remember one day, I was like, oh, I don't feel the weather. Like, I felt like it was over whatever it was. And I was like, I need to see Leo. So my husband and myself and my sister-in-law and Leo, we met for tacos and we were sitting having tacos and it was so great. Leo was being so sweet and I was like, I can do this. I'm not going to cry in front of him. I'm not going to be emotional. I'm not going to scar him with my grief over my dead chihuahua. It's going to be great. And at one point, basically, I look and Leo reaches out and he touches my little hand and he says, what exactly happened with Charlie and I was like, I can do this. So I started explaining to him how radiation worked and I couldn't believe I could do it. And as I'm explaining, well, this and it's less treatments and more and it's focused radiation. I know that I made enough sense to a five-year-old by the time I was done. He was like, so you kind of put him in a microwave. I was like, oh I, I kind of did it. Like I made that much sense, which is amazing. And I said, yes, they kind of put him in a microwave and it was great. And then all of a sudden he reaches out and he puts his little hand on mine and he just says, are you sad? And like the weather started. I was like, oh, sh- there's still weather. You know what I mean? And I just blurted, Do you want ice cream? And his mother, it was 10 a.m. We were having breakfast. And his mother looks at me like, what? what's going on? But you can't say that to a five-year-old without ice cream happening. So 10 minutes later, we're down the street and he has this ice cream he loves called Cookie Monster Ice Cream. He, he's covered in blue. It's toxic blue. No child, no one should ingest this. Blue. He has it in a cone. And then in the other thing, because it's so big, he has a, a cup that he can kind of rest it upside down in and just navigate. He's really little. And he's having the ice cream. He's so happy. It's not even lunchtime. And as we leave the ice cream place, um, my sister-in-law and my husband are walking ahead of me, and I'm walking with Leo. And they cross the street. And me and Leo were there. Ooh, and we can't cross because it's a crosswalk. So we wait a minute. And then when the light changes... I go to cross with Leo, and he looks at me, and he's got blue smeared, blue hand, blue the blue cup, and he looks at me, and he's like, and he's, his face is saying, "What am I? What am I supposed to do, Uncle David?" And the reason his face is doing this is because he knows he's a good boy. You don't cross the street without holding the hand of an adult, and there is no hand to hold. It's just blue mess, cup, <laughs> cone, dripping. What? And I reach down and I say. Can I'm gonna grab your collar? Is that okay? And he's like, okay. So I grab his collar, and we're sort of shuffling across the street. And I feel like I look like one of those angry like '50s moms that grabs a kid by the ear, get out of my house, you bad news, you know, like Eddie Haskell or something. It feels so aggressive. And as we walk by people, they're just lighting up, just giggling and laughing at this like bright-eyed boy covered in blue, toxic blue ice cream being dragged across the street. They're just like, ha, 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 laughing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, really, I'm not. He just doesn't have. A hand, right? So as we're crossing the street, we're almost to the curb. And all of a sudden, he looks at me and he says, it's kind of like you have me on a leash. And I say, yeah. And then he says, he says, if you want, I can be Charlie now. We get up on the curb. We're in front of this horrific generic version of a Forever 21. I drop to my knees and I just hug him so hard and I remember <laughs> I'm like weeping and I look over his shoulder and up ahead I see my husband and my sister-in-law stop and they turn and I can see Claire looking like oh and I see my husband I always remember grab her arm almost like let him have this like <laughs> let him just let him be <laughs> and I hug Leo and as I'm hugging him all of a sudden I feel my shoulders wet and I'm like um, oh, this is like the thing I didn't want to do like this kid that I care about so much is so broken and sad by seeing me this way and now he's crying he doesn't even know why And I look at our reflection in the Forever 21 window, and over my shoulder, my nephew has his ice cream cone under my armpit of the hug (laughs) we're in. He's trying so hard to get his chin over the top of my shoulder to make mouth connection with the ice cream. My shoulder is wet with toxic blue ice cream. There's no tears, he's already forgotten it. No registering at all. Just like I love you, but this tastes good. I give him a hug and I know it's going to be okay. And the next few weeks it was okay. And I got to hang out with him again and not feel weird or like I was going to scar him. And I also learned a little bit about being emotional in front of him. Maybe that's not the worst thing. And it was a few months after that when me and him and our new dog Frankie were sitting in our front yard in Eagle Rock with this little five-month-old dog watching the sunset, which he liked to do as a puppy, which was the cutest thing ever. He would just sit silently and watch the sunset. And me and Leo were sitting with him watching the sunset. And... On the table between us is one of those crystal necklaces I got from the New Age shop, and it had, it had broken, and there were kind of loose rocks all over the table. And, and Leo reaches over, and he starts touching. I'm like, no, no, Leo, Leo, don't, don't, don't mess with that. I'm gonna see if I can fix it or something. He's like, why don't you just take it to your rubber band man? <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was like, you remember that? And he just reached out, and he patted my hand, and he said, I remember a lot of things. <laughs> Thank you.
0: That was David Crabb. David Crabb is a writer, actor, and storyteller in Los Angeles. He's a member of the Groundlings Sunday Company and author of the memoir, Bad Kid, based on his New York Times Critics' Pick solo show of the same name. David is a host of The Moth and Risk LA. He's a professor of autobiographical storytelling at Occidental College and has directed and taught storytelling in the U.S., Australia, Ireland, and Canada. The Story Collider is so grateful to Chris and David for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, Managing Producer Misha Gajewski, and Senior Podcast Editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Education Director Lily B., Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Devin Codges and Hoda Imam and Brian Kett and Leslie Bernson, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, Eric Jankowski will be back with stories about community and finding a place to belong in science. Until then, thanks so much for listening.